This is a Federal News Network podcast. The White House has three. NSA and U.S. Cyber Command both have a general, and they've got one. CISA has one. We're talking about agencies with presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed positions that are focused on cybersecurity. The Energy Department, on the other hand, decided it didn't need a presidentially appointed or Senate-confirmed leader in its Office of Cybersecurity, Energy, Security, and Emergency Response, known as CSER. In his weekly Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why some say this decision is short-sighted, sends the wrong message especially at a time when the energy sector is facing more serious cyber threats than ever. Jason joins me now with more. And Jason, why is this decision by energy so concerning to the experts you spoke with and to Congress itself? I think there's several reasons why this has come up. The first is, Tom, this goes back to 2018 when the Energy Department and the White House under during the Trump administration established CSER, Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response. Like the DHS version, CISA says it's security is so important, it's in our title twice. Well, this is true for CSER as well. And the whole point of CSER was to elevate the department's energy security responsibilities, safeguard U.S. critical energy infrastructure against growing and evolving cyber and physical threats. Seems very logical at a time when cybersecurity is getting more serious, more concerning for the entire energy sector, the entire critical infrastructure sector. In fact, President Joe Biden issued a statement in March urging critical infrastructure providers, many of which are in the energy sector, to harden your cyber defenses immediately in light of Russian attackers as the Ukraine war started. And just another quick point, Tom, Dragos, a cybersecurity firm, found its 2021 ICSOT, Industrial Control Systems Operational Technology Urine Review Report, that 18 worldwide threat groups that it tracks, two of the three newest ones are focused on industrial control systems intrusions that are looking at theft and disruption. So I think these are key focus that says, hey, this timing is just so important to secure the energy sector. It's because of those reasons that someone who is presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed, who holds the gravitas, if you will, Tom, to walk into the room and tell people what to do, to walk into the room with CEOs and others and really get the, the, the message across about why cybersecurity is so important for the energy sector. And is this going to have an impact? Could Congress mandate this? A lot of Congress is starting to pay attention. There's been two separate letters right now from lawmakers, both Republicans and Democrats, one back in March 2021 and again another one in April of 2022, both saying to the Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, what are you doing about this? How do you ensure that the Energy Department is the lead agency when it comes to Energy Department cybersecurity? Tom, let's be clear here. This does not take anything away from the current director of CSER, uh, Puesh Kumar, who's highly respected, knowledgeable, has a great background. All the experts I've talked to former folks who worked in CSER and current ones uh, the, in, the, in the cybersecurity world say he is a, would be a great choice for that position. But because he is a career official, he does not walk into the room with this, this at the same level as so many others. And Tom, part of the reason I pointed out in my story that the uh, White House has so many cybersecurity experts. There's three of them. Ann Neuberger, Chris English, Chris DeRussia. Why CISA is led by a cybersecurity director. Why U.S. Cyber Command and NSA is led by both a General Nakasomi and who's presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed is because all those folks are in the room during these critical times. And when Kumar walks in the room, he just doesn't bring the same level, no matter how great he is and, and no matter how smart he is, he's not bringing that same energy, that same gravitas as these other people are. And I think that worries folks who have been in those positions before, who understands the difference between a career 
and a political appointee. Yeah, plus he doesn't have necessarily the statutory authority that comes with political appointees either. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller, and Caesar has had people in that position earlier, correct? Correct. Karen Evans, uh, the former federal CIO, the former DHS CIO, was the only politically appointed Senate-confirmed Assistant Secretary of Caesar. She started in September 2018, lasts about 18 months till February 2020. But since then, Caesar has either had acting uh, Assistant Secretaries or just the career deputies in charge. And again, Tom, I just want to be clear here. Uh, Puesh Kumar is a really smart person. No one's taking anything away from him. But when I talk to, for instance, Sean Planky, who's the former uh, global intelligence advisor at uh, British Petroleum, who also was the deputy assistant secretary at Caesar and has held both career positions and political appointed positions, he said to me, listen, you just don't hold the same thing. When you walk into the room, when you walk into a boardroom with CEOs at large energy companies, when you talk to chief information security officers at large energy companies, and, and you don't have that White House behind you, you definitely lose something. You also lose something from going on to Capitol Hill. I talked to Mark Montgomery, who's the former executive director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, and he said the same thing. Not only is this management 101, right, this idea that if you think it's important, you're sending the message that's important both inside and outside the agency, you make someone a presidentially appointed position and you, you put them in the front end because then they can deal with uh, there's accountability, there's resources and all the other pieces and parts that come with that position. So this goes back then to Jennifer Granholm, the Secretary of Energy. Is she the one that could make this happen? What I'm hearing from different sources is two things. It's Granholm, but it's also the White House. There are only so many across the entire government. There's only so many at the Energy Department. And Granholm and the White House decided to use their presidentially appointed positions in different ways. Whether or not there's too many presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed people, that's a whole different discussion. We know right. our friends at the Partnership for Public Service have has a specific view on that, that there are too many. But for this position, when it comes to cybersecurity, my understanding is there's only a limited number and they chose to allocate them the way they allocated them and not for Caesar. Right. I have a feeling where they did allocate them probably has something to do with batteries, maybe. But what does energy say, if anything, about that decision not to have a presidentially appointed Caesar head? Energy says a couple things. First of all, I talked to Jeremiah Bownham, who the deputy chief of staff in the office of the undersecretary for infrastructure. Caesar falls under that office of the undersecretary for infrastructure. And he says there's a couple reasons why they chose to go with a career person versus a political one. One, they don't want to politicize the office they think will be more effective. Second, they also don't want that position held up by Congress because, you know, as, as, as Bauman said, the whim of one senator who's unhappy about something that has unrelated to Caesar could hold up that position for months or years. And they want somebody in that position because it is so critical, somebody who can get things done, deal with resources, address big challenges. And, and I think that's understandable. However, when I talk to folks like Nick Anderson, who, again, a former deputy assistant secretary in Caesar, he goes, that's a little disingenuous because every position in every of these offices in energy department has a career person already. So it's not like there's not transition and planning for when there's no political appointee. So, so just saying, well, we don't want it to get hung up in the politics. He calls that, again, a little disingenuous. Uh, the other thing that Bauman said, which I thought was, was interesting, they think it's critical to have that steady leadership. The, regardless of politics, emergency response, cybersecurity really matters. And, and you don't want to be, okay, do we have someone in position to make a decision when the Colonial Pipeline hack happened? You have someone there who's in charge, who knows what their position is, and they're not worried about making the incoming political appointee unhappy. So I see both sides. I, I just think that based on what we've seen in the energy sector, Tom, I, I can understand why these experts call energy decision both short-sighted 
and damaging potentially. Right. And there are other departments, not just Homeland Security, but energy is one of them, that have the responsibility for kind of liaison in a cyber sense with the industries that they interact with. And so every other industry would have a politically appointed cyber person at the federal level, except those in the energy sector. So there's not only a governmental mismatch there, but there's also an industrial inequality. And that's absolutely right. When you think about a, if there's an issue with an energy sector, let's go back to March during the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine. There was meetings between the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, Energy Department, the critical infrastructure providers. And when Jen Easterly, the director of CISA, who is presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed, walks into the room or gets on the phone, and then you have a career official, they carry different weights into that room and people look at them differently. Fair or not, that's the way perception is. And I think that's why energy is missing their opportunity to really send the right message externally that says, this is so important. We're going to use one of our politically appointed positions for this position. And it sends the message internally, both within energy and across government that says, this is a huge importance to my administration and to the energy department at large. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do 
at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current uh, current times. I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so. I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.
This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.